0: As I noted to you earlier, I want to start a new series of messages uh, this morning regarding serving God. I want you to see what service to God looks like and how God enables us to serve him. Uh, We're also going to look at who God calls to serve him and what that entails. Maybe serving God is not exactly on the top of your list of things to do. In fact, maybe the idea of serving God is a thorn in your side, pricking you with guilt and making you feel uh, rather uncomfortable. Certainly, I do not want to add to that guilt today. I simply want to show to you who is a servant of God, why we should serve God, and how we should serve God. Here is why it is such an important topic. If you turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45, Mark 10, 45, you read the words of Jesus Christ. And there he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ said that he came, the Son of Man came, not to be served, but rather to serve And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said that he came to serve and not to be served. And if Christ did not want to be uh, served, then how much more should we follow that example? He did not come with the idea of being the center of attention, looking for personal success, fame, or power. Uh, He did not want people to look at him and call him heroic. Rather, Jesus Christ came to serve others. By giving, of course, ultimately, the greatest act of service he gave his life. He was not looking for personal fame. He was not looking for personal applause. Of course, Christ was the attention of the message. But he was not looking for personal fame. He was looking for, one, God to be glorified, and number two, our souls to be redeemed. Having read and benefited from Christ's service, How then should we live? Where does serving God fit into your life? And we're going to begin this morning by looking at what the Apostle Paul has to say in terms of a life of serving God listed for us in his first letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And this is how it reads. so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what I want to do this morning, having read these five verses, is show to you the Apostle Paul's approach, and then his determination, and finally the Apostle Paul's purpose. Three points, his approach, his determination, and then the Apostle's purpose. So let's begin with verse 1. And there we see the approach that the Apostle took as he Came to the church in Corinth, and notice there in verse one that he refers to himself as a proclaimer. A proclaimer. Um, he came to openly declare, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and let me remind you that it is a celebratory proclamation of a particular truth. Uh, Paul is not coming to Corinth to proclaim a, loom, a gloom and doom list of things you need to do that's not the case at all Paul is proclaiming the gospel of freedom the gospel of redemption the gospel of satisfaction for the soul and unfortunately many people think of the gospel as a list of things I have to do and Paul makes it absolutely clear that that's not the case at all and neither is Paul coming to them with a hodgepodge of ideas muddled together uh, he was not being a life coach. <laughs> he was certainly not a life coach. Uh, he did not have this uh, amazing mixed bag of advice that will somehow make your life better or more successful. That was not the Apostle's approach at all. And I mention that because that is the rather common approach that some preachers, some churches take. No, it's quite different, my friends. He approached the church in Corinth, as a proclaimer of the testimony of God. A proclaimer of the testimony of God. Testimony of God concerning Jesus Christ. In other words, he's here to proclaim the testimony, the evidence of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. He's coming to prove the testimony of God. The word testimony there is important. It's a reference to the evidence of who Christ is according to God. You now, just this past week, my two-year-old daughter, granddaughter was learning the Ten Commandments. And I'm, I'm quickly becoming one of these grandfathers who, every time I speak to uh, my son, I ask him, so what else did your daughter do? And, well... She's learning the Ten Commandments, and on the day that she learned the Ninth Commandment, she also decided to go against the Ninth Commandment. She decided that she would not bear, bear true testimony. Instead, she would bear false testimony. Commandment number nine was broken. She lied to her mother, and her mother corrected her and reprimanded her. And that evening, she decided she would pray about it. And before she went to bed, she said, Lord, I'm sorry for bearing false macaroni. (laughs) False macaroni. She doesn't quite understand the word testimony, but she does understand this, right from wrong, true from lies. And her little heart was convicted, still very moldable. Her little heart was convicted of the fact that she spoke. Something that was not true, not only to her mother, but to God himself. Here, Paul is bearing out the true testimony of God in regards to Jesus Christ. Evidence and proof concerning God the Son, how he became flesh, his doctrines, the teachings of Jesus Christ, his miracles to a people, and of course, the life of Christ in general, and the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul, of course, was quick then to also convey the importance and the act of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, followed by the ascension and exaltation of Jesus Christ. But neither did he forget the promised return of Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, of course, that is the duty of the apostle. The apostle is supposed to do these things. And you'd be correct. But let me remind you that it's not just the duty of the apostle to have this particular approach of proclaiming the gospel. It is the general duty of every Christian. We're all supposed to be proclaiming Christ this way. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, John writes that this is the testimony of God that he has given to us concerning his Son, this is the testimony of god that he has given to us all of us regarding his son this is what we are to know this is what we are to proclaim and by the way this is what we should expect as a church that this proclamation would be made that this should be our approach that we would proclaim clearly the testimony of god regarding jesus christ i have a general rule for every time I I preach, and that is that I ought to offend anybody who is Jewish or Islamic here in the room. It's not that I want to offend people. I have no real desire to offend anyone. But I know that if there's a person, Jewish person, who does not believe in Christ in the room, or a Muslim person in the room, they will be offended when I speak of Jesus Christ as God, as God the Son in the flesh, And so they would be offended. And if they're not offended, it means I have not spoken clearly and properly about Jesus Christ. But notice here that the Apostle Paul did not do this with lofty speech and wisdom. Verse 1. He did not come with lofty speech and wisdom, referring here to human wisdom. Now, this is an important fact because... The people in Corinth were accustomed to just that. It was a cosmopolitan city. And they loved their philosophers. They loved their rhetoric. They loved their deep religious conversations. They engaged in deep thought and debated ideas. They thrived on human wisdom. And the Apostle Paul comes and he presents quite the opposite to them. He gave them instead the simplicity of the gospel. Now the gospel is profound. I think we all know that. Profound truth, but it is also simple enough for a child to comprehend. And Paul explains that he did not approach them with eloquent words, though he could have. He does not involve human wisdom in his preaching. No, he involves divine wisdom. In other words, it's wisdom from God's word, wisdom from godly principles. And in 1 Corinthians, if you go back just one chapter, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, speaks of the power of divine wisdom. There we read that in every way you were enriched. This is what he says to the people in Corinth. You were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The Apostle Paul proclaimed the evidence about Christ that transformed them. His speech and his knowledge from God transformed them, their speech, their knowledge. It was a testimony that brought about faith and conversion in the people of Corinth, in the church in Corinth. There was so much that Paul, the Apostle, could have said, but he gave them only what pertained to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. He spoke to them regarding Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why did he do that? Because he knew their greatest need. So he proclaimed God's greatest offer, salvation in Christ alone. That was Paul's approach. Second, beginning of verse 2, we see how determined the Apostle Paul was. He did do his homework. He knew what he was capable of doing. And he limited himself, the scope of what he would talk about, he limited to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2, 3, and 4, and there we see what Paul displays as the characteristics or the nature of someone who serves God. Uh, We saw his approach. Now take a look at his determination. And he gives to us here six examples of what the servant of God looks like. The determination of the servant of God. Six. They're brief, but six nonetheless. How can we improve our service to God? Well, consider these six points that the Apostle Paul gives to us as a personal example from him. Beginning of verse 2, notice here his determination. Paul, first of all, was very intentional. Intentional. We read in verse 2 that he, he, he writes this, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you, but, and then he goes on, it was very intentional. I decided. It was a decision made to place Things of first importance first. He does this for 18 months as he serves there in Corinth. In fact, if you jump over to chapter 15 and verse 3, he makes it very clear. He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes on to explain the gospel and the implications of the gospel in the people's lives. He knew exactly what needed to be first. And so here's our first lesson. The servant of God is deliberate regarding what is of first importance. Uh, he knows how to, she knows how to prioritize what should be first. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear that it was the gospel. Which leads us then to verse 2 in our second point that says Paul was not only intentional, but he was focused. He was focused. There are so many things that can be said and done by a church. There are so many things we can be involved in, so many topics to discuss, so many fine projects and activities a church of Christ could be involved with. In fact, I read of one denomination that spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on building a replica slave ship. It was the ship, the Amistad. And listen, I think it's a good thing to have Uh, that ship rebuilt, I think it's a good thing to remember the story of the Amistad. However, I have to question as to whether or not it is the job of the church to build the replica of the Amistad. Because the job of the church is the gospel of Christ. It is the proclamation of the word of Christ and then the proclamation of that same word through our actions. You see, our job as a church is to develop a community of believers that join together for the cause of Christ, the cause of Christ, not the betterment of humanity, but for the cause of Christ. And Paul made it his intentional point, and he stayed very focused in order not to be involved in what was not the gospel of Christ when he was about, when he was busy in the work of the church it's not to say that the apostle Paul only spoke of the gospel when he was on his free time when if he had free time I'm sure he did those things that he enjoyed doing but when it came to the business of the church it was all about the gospel of Jesus Christ so at verse 2 we read this for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him Crucified, that is, all he was interested in, in conveying to them and knowing about them is the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ and how those two truths apply to the church, to them from day to day. So here's lesson number two, the servant of God stays focused on the mission of the gospel. He stays focused. She stays focused on the mission of the gospel. And here is a third lesson. Paul's life was driven by this gospel truth. We don't necessarily see it in these five verses. It is certainly implied, but we see it elsewhere in the writings of the apostle. We see it in particular Philippians one twenty-one. And there he says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In other words, if I were to die tomorrow, it would be a promotion. However, more, more likely, I am going to be alive tomorrow, and if I am, well, I will live for Christ. He is driven by Christ, by the gospel of Christ in him. And he says in a very similar way, Galatians chapter two twenty, essentially the same thing. He says, I have been crucified With Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so here's lesson number three, my friends. The servant of God is driven by the truth of the gospel. The servant of God is driven, he's carried, she is taken from day to day by the truth of the gospel. And then we come to verse 3, and there you see a fourth lesson for us. Notice here that the Apostle Paul is not cavalier. He's not cavalier. Um, What I mean by not cavalier is that he is not arrogant. He is not proud. When it comes to the things of Christ, he is not careless. He writes this, and it might be a bit surprising to you. He writes, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. I was with you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. That's a rather interesting statement from the bold Apostle Paul. Well, pastorally, I could understand his reason for being weak and fearful and trembling. Uh, there's a true sense in which fear and trembling is part of any sincere preacher. Uh, the pastor has to actually give an account to God for his church. And that should be enough to make anybody tremble. Uh, as a pastor, I have to give an account to you, uh, to God for you. Uh, and that certainly doesn't make me sweat. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says it very clearly. It says that they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account to God. I constantly have to remind myself as I come before this pulpit that this is the means by which God changes lives. I come up here stating that to myself, that this is the way in which God changes lives. And it seems rather silly, doesn't it, that this is the way God would change lives by the proclamation of the word of God. And meanwhile, while I'm preaching to you, I'm constantly reminded of my own deep weaknesses. Even as I remind you of the standards of God for your own life. See, so pastorally, there's good reason for him to be fearful and trembling. But physically as well, there's reason for him to be afraid. Paul, keep in mind, just prior to this, had to escape from being murdered by being lowered out of a window in a basket. (laughs) People were trying to kill him. He had to escape through a window in a basket. And maybe you know that in the ministry of Paul, in his ministry life, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was threatened. Paul faced lawsuits, he was ridiculed, he was ignored, he was argued with, he was questioned, he was not trusted, he was shipwrecked more than once. He was bitten by a viper, a poisonous viper. And in fact, as we read here from 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul has undergone, according to Acts chapter 18, he has undergone um, having to face the proconsul there in Corinth because he was actually taken to the court on the charges that he was teaching something that was false and illegal. Uh, The case was dismissed, but had it not been dismissed, Paul would have been incarcerated. Eventually he is incarcerated, and eventually he dies in jail. And so we see here how physically he had reason to be trembling. But there's also, and maybe primarily, a personal reason for Paul to be weak and fearful. And that's because the apostle knew himself. His status did not make him cavalier or proud. You know, despite his position among men, he had a very high social standing. He was a former Pharisee. Despite the superior education, he had the best education of his time and place. Despite his elite reputation, what they knew about him, wherever the Apostle Paul went, people knew who he was. And despite his title as an apostle, that is, his position in the church, as given to him by Christ himself, Paul was still aware of who he was, and he approached the proclamation of the gospel with fear and trembling. He knew his weaknesses. In fact, look at what they used to say about the apostle. It's recorded in chapter 10, verse 10, 1 Corinthians ten, ten. It says, his letters are weighty and forceful and impressive. But his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible, of no account. <laughs> That's what people knew of the Apostle Paul. Well, my point here is that the Apostle was very much self-aware. And, that, and because he's so aware of himself, he does not place himself above his listeners, He does not place himself above the people he is serving. So you see here that the servant of God is self-aware, and therefore he's humble. The servant of God is self-aware, and therefore he's humble. And here's number five. Number five. And even though all these things are true about him, the fear, the trembling, and the good cause for it, Paul is still willing to take risks for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's still willing to take risks. He did not let his fear and weakness keep him from serving God. And neither did he let his circumstances impede him from serving the Lord. He did not say, well, when I'm better at it, or when I have more time, when I have more energy. No, he served the Lord where he was at, at the moment in which God called him and enabled him. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, Woe to me! Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not serve God. So here's lesson number five for us this morning. The servant of God is determined to serve while he trusts in God. The servant of God is determined to serve God even while he is trusting in God. And here in verse four, we see the sixth and last lesson. Notice here that Paul did not try to impress anyone but he was powerful. He didn't try to impress, but he was powerful. It reads this way, verse 4. And my speech and my message were not plausible words. They were not enticing or persuasive words. That's what he means by plausible. Uh, Rather, he says, they are a demonstration of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was present in what I said, and therefore my words were potent, potent because God was with me. God gave him wisdom to say such things. Yes, he was studied. Yes, he prayerfully prepared. But God made his words potent. They were effective because they were of the wisdom of God. In fact, he says in that verse, verse 4, he says that they were, quote, a demonstration of the spirit and of power. That word power there is from where we get the English dynamite. Again, keep in mind, That the natural taste of the Corinthians was for dynamic speech, for dynamite wisdom, and dynamite philosophies and rhetoric. And Paul did not give them any of that. What he did give to them, though, was the power of God, the power from above. And the people saw that this was not a natural skill. This was not his um, talent, but rather it was from God. It came from above. And so Paul was not applauded, but rather God was glorified. You see, the power of his teaching was from God, and therefore it was effective. Therefore it was convincing and even convicting. Well, in contrast, consider what I was mentioning downstairs to some of you in regards to the father of American modern revivalism a fellow by the name of Charles Finney. Uh, He was a New Jersey lawyer who moved to upstate New York back in the mid-1800s. And Charles Finney again became the father of American modern revivalism. And Finney believed that with the right music and the right atmosphere, he could convert anybody to Christ. In fact, this is what he said. He said, quote, A revival is not a miracle. He goes on to say, it is purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. In other words, Finney believed that through his preaching, if you give him the right atmosphere, the right opportunities, the right music, the right stage, the right show, he would be able to bring anybody to Christ. And it was because of Finney that preaching here in the United States went from a focus on the Spirit of God working through the objective content of the scriptures, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It went from that focus to preaching in order to persuade people to make decisions and, of course, then doing whatever it takes to entice people to make decisions for Jesus Christ. And indeed he did He went out of his way to excite people. He believed that if he excited them enough, the constituted means, they would believe. In fact, he had a bench at the front of his uh, church where people who felt like they were getting excited and they might convert to Jesus to come forward and sit there. And he would do this through his oratory skills, the length of his message, the dynamics of his message, The choice of words and, of course, the emotions, the right music, the proper atmosphere. He would be able to convert anyone. Now, later in life, he did recant some of that, but the damage was already done. Here the Apostle Paul says, again, verse 2, that he preaches solely Jesus Christ and him crucified. Without any persuasive gimmicks or enticements or dependency on himself. So here's the last lesson for us this morning in regards to being a servant of God. The servant of God depends on God's power and not on his own abilities. The servant of God depends on God's power through God's word and not on his own abilities. Well, let me make one last point this morning as we look at verse 5. We saw Paul's approach, we saw his determination, and now take a look here at Paul's purpose. Verse 5. Why did the Apostle Paul suppress himself and stick to just this idea, Jesus Christ and him crucified? It's not exactly what people were clamoring for. It does not excite many listeners. In fact, it may very well push listeners away. But Paul writes this, verse 5. He gives us the purpose right there. It's very clear. He says, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So that your faith will not rest in the wisdom of man, but rather it will rest in the power of God. Where will your your faith come from? From the power of God, not from the wisdom of man, not from the methods of man, not from the antics of man. You see, it is God who imparts wisdom to man, and he does so through his word. It is God who changes hearts through his power. Don't be persuaded by human methods, but rather be persuaded by the Spirit of God. As you expose yourself to who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Foolishness to some, absolutely. A stumbling block to others, no doubt. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved by it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 Paul's purpose was that the people who would hear his message would find their faith rooted in the truth of the power of Christ. He did not want you to be persuaded by carefully crafted human wisdom, by well-placed verbs and nouns, He did not want you to be persuaded by appearances or glamour or beauty. He wasn't looking for you to be dazzled by performances or, or, or convinced because of emotions. Rather, the Apostle Paul wants you to know Christ. He wants to see, if you will, that success of salvation in you through the gospel. And that does not depend on his skill or his methods. That does not depend on the servant's skill or methods. But rather on the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not dependent on reason. This is what Charles Hodge writes. I paraphrased him. He said, salvation is not dependent on reason, but on the power of God through his truth when it is applied to the heart. Salvation is dependent on God's truth applied to the heart. And not on reason. It's not to say that we do not think through our faith, but it does mean that the truth of God goes against our ability to reason humanly. And so Paul made it clear Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what he proclaims. That's what we must proclaim. And that's what we must insist on as a church for ourselves. So my friends, to improve your service to God, take these six examples to heart. The servant of God is deliberate regarding what is of first importance. The servant of God stays focused on the mission of the gospel. The servant of God is driven By the truth of the gospel, the servant of God, this is number four, is self-aware and therefore humble. Number five, the servant of God is determined to serve while he trusts in God. And lastly, the servant of God depends on God's power and not his own abilities. So that a people will have faith that is rooted in Christ alone. Now, my friends, go out and serve our Lord.